Um, Today's reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them whether Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks 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 be to God. So, good morning. Is this on? Can you hear me? The light is red. It's good? Okay. All right. So, Happy New Year. And we have come today to the 12th and final day of Christmas. So once more, just for good measure, Merry Christmas to everyone. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Sarah Steele. I'm involved with Catechism and Corpus and the 830 services here at the church. And I am really excited, actually, to get to share with you on this, our first Sunday of 2020. So like I said, this first Sunday of the new year is actually the last Sunday of Christmas and the eve of the Epiphany. Traditionally, this was cause for huge celebration. To observe this 12th night bridge between Christmas and the Epiphany, the church would get together, they would sing Christmas carols, they would chalk their doors and bless their homes, they would attend church services together, And just generally, it was a really big party, really festival-like, actually. There were performances. Shakespeare's Twelfth Night was actually written to be performed today. There were concerts. There was special food. Christmas trees were traditionally taken down today in order to make space for the merrymaking of Epiphany. It was, this is really a beautiful picture of the church, I think. It was a celebration to end a celebration in order to begin a celebration. Because actually, in fact, up until the 19th century, the Epiphany was celebrated with more fervor than Christmas Day even. And that makes a lot of sense if you understand that Epiphany has long been viewed as the third in a trilogy of seasons that begin our church year, none of which are ever meant to stand alone. In any good trilogy, each installment possesses its own integrity. You could read or watch any one piece on its own and find it really enjoyable. 
But the real richness is when you discover that each installment exists to serve the greater whole. Each piece is meant to spur you on to the next piece until finally you reach the end. Each component builds on the previous components and are understood best when taken in as part of an ascending whole. Epiphany is this third part of what we could call a saga of the seasons. Like the third book or the third movie of a trilogy, hopes are realized here. Secrets are revealed. It's when it all comes together, when we get to go out with the lessons of the story alive in us. In Advent, we prepared for the coming of the Christ. We turned our hearts to our Christian past, and we remembered the promises for a Messiah who would come. And then secure in that past, we got to anticipate the future when he would come again. In Christmas, we got to celebrate that the Messiah came, fully God and fully man, as an infant through the Virgin Mary, making way for the redemption of humanity. These are just part one and part two of a trilogy, though. When the first two installments are so good, it's uh, no wonder that they get a lot of our attention. Who could deny the masterpiece of Advent and Christmas? Who would ever want to? But the beauty of Advent and Christmas, as beautiful as they are on their own, they should create even more excitement for Epiphany. It's a season we largely leave out of the celebration. But remember, in a trilogy, each piece exists to serve an ascending whole. That means it's only going to get better. This evening is going to deliver us all into epiphany. We're about to begin part three of three, the part that rounds out Advent and Christmas, that continues our celebration and that compels us to take all that we've just celebrated out into the world. In Epiphany, we get to celebrate the manifestation, the showing forth of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God made flesh. Emmanuel came, and then Emmanuel let us know that he had come. If the miracle of Advent is that there was and is a promise that Jesus was and is going to come, and the miracle of Christmas is that he did in fact come, then the miracle of Epiphany is that he let humanity in on it. Think about it. Jesus could have come and left it at that. That would have still had radical implications in and of itself for humanity but it's in the showing forth, the making known of that coming, that God opens wide his plan for salvation. Epiphany lets the incarnation change everything. We get to spend the next season, seven weeks, making space for the celebration and recognition that the incarnation changes everything for us. Seven, way, or seven weeks to reflect on the ways that the glory of God in Jesus has been shown forth to us. So just to set up our next season a little bit, the showing forth of the glory of God in Christ takes many different forms, so our season of Epiphany commemorates many different things if we follow the lectionary readings through the season. First, the coming of the Magi from the East to worship at the cradle of the baby Jesus. 
than the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan with the voice from heaven declaring that this is Jesus and he is the beloved Son of God. Then the visit of Jesus at 12 years old to the temple where he astonished the most learned people of that time by his understanding and his answers to their questions. And then a series of Jesus' miracles, the changing of water into wine at the marriage feast of Cana, the healing of a leper and the centurion's servant, the calming of the troubled sea. And then at the end of the season of Epiphany, right before Lent starts, we get to have prophetic lessons about the final coming of the Son of God in power and great glory. So there's a really broad and great diversity of commemorations in the next seven weeks, but they're all tied together by this one common theme. They are all aspects of the showing forth, the shining forth, the epiphany of the divine glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of God made flesh. These varied commemorations of epiphany will make up a continuing meditation upon the meaning of the Christmas miracle, the miracle of God with us, God in our flesh, Emmanuel, God visible to human eyes, audible to human ears, God tangible to human touch, God manifest in our human life, restoring and transforming it by the grace and truth that he brings. This is a season that is summed up in John 1.14. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Epiphany. We behold his glory. We see him for who he truly is. Tomorrow, on the Feast of Epiphany itself, we commemorate especially the visit of the Magi, or the wise men, as our text refers to them. We'll just read the first couple of uh, verses to start. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so our text today begins with the movement of a star that pulls these men, most likely astrologers, um, certainly not Israelites, towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the home of the temple, the beating heart of Israel's faith and worship. So these wise men arrive at the palace of Herod the king. Now we have to understand that Herod is a king who has been appointed by the Romans. Um, He's not a king by birth nor by blood. He calls himself the king of the Jews, but he's a puppet of the empire. He has a reputation for ruthlessness. He's murdered a rival family to the throne. He's murdered one of his wives and two of his own sons out of paranoia. So these wise men arrive at his palace and tell him about the star they've followed there. They come searching, sharing their analysis and interpretation of this phenomenon. Where is the child, they ask, born king of the Jews? We've been watching the sky and we followed the star here. We've come to pay our respects and to worship. They have no idea where to go, though, from here. 
They were drawn this far by a star, but there are pieces to this puzzle that are missing. There's things they can't quite figure out still. There's a king here, but not the king, and they know it. This incredible supernatural phenomenon, this guidance in the form of a star, has taken the Magi only so far. Their celestial revelation, it was only partial. So we pick up in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The text tells us that Herod is freaked out, and the whole city along with him. The Magi have come telling him that a new king has been born, but Herod is already the king. And being a king who had proven himself ruthless and paranoid and willing to keep the throne at all costs, any fool would know that coming to him with news of a new king was like tossing a match into a gas can. Herod is troubled, and all of Jerusalem along with them. This was going to upset everything. So Herod knew he was going to have to get rid of this threat, but he had no more information than the Magi, no more information than the Magi star had been able to provide. So Herod gathers the chief priests and the scribes together. And what happens here is probably my favorite part of my reflections this week. It's incredibly profound. We have to hear what's being said here. We have to catch this. Guess what the chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders and the scholars of the day, guess what they study and know inside and out? Guess what Israelite, Gentile, and king alike have to appeal to here? They have to go to the scriptures. Please, please don't miss this. That in Matthew's account, in our first epiphany commemoration, spiritual phenomenon, celestial revelation, it was only partial revelation. The Magi, Herod, the chief priests and scribes, they all find themselves here at a standstill, requiring their submission to God's revelation in the scriptures. Herod asks where the Messiah is supposed to show up because this phenomenon only takes them so far. So they search their scriptures. They lean on the prophets and what's been revealed in God's word to his people. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Bethlehem, the city of David, Israel's most renowned king. This is where the new king, the promised one, was supposed to be born. The scriptures reveal it. The scriptures don't just confirm the revelation the wise men received supernaturally. The scriptures complete the revelation. And without the scripture, there is no epiphany. They take their direction to, fur to journey further on from the scriptures. This is incredible. <laughs> Does this not make you love your Bibles? Does this not make reading your Bible one of the most supernatural, spirit-filled, charismatic activities of our Christian existence? Please, please let Epiphany 
reframe your view of the scriptures if this isn't what it inspires in you. We have so much to be thankful for in God's word. Submission to God's revelation in the scriptures leads the Magi on to epiphany. The star reappears now. And Herod sends them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. In following further, they found the king. It was a strange sort of king, but the king. And they knew it. They knew it because their eyes of faith had been opened to the divine glory shone forth in a helpless baby. Epiphany. They found this little child there with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They saw him there in all of his humble, earthly manner. And they saw him for who he was. Divine glory incarnate. By the leading of a star, God showed his only son to the peoples of the earth. This is the epiphany we celebrate. It's not so much an epiphany in the usual sense of our understanding of it. It's not so much that they had a flash of insight or a sudden recognition. I think Christian epiphany has less to do with us than that. Maybe, maybe Christian epiphany is not us having the epiphany, but the epiphany having us. That's why the Magi followed the star and journeyed toward where it led and had to search and needed the scriptures. Something had claimed and called them. Something had a hold of them. Something, someone, wanted to show himself to them. Epiphany is not so much those moments when we say of Christ, ah, I've got it. It's rather the moment when we can say, ah, he's got me. There, at that moment, when the Christ child showed forth God's glory, the Magi, who might actually earn the name wise men at this point, they were overjoyed, and they worshipped him, and they acknowledged, ah, he's got me. And this moment is so much bigger than just the wise men. This is the moment where God shows us all that he wants to get us all. This is the reason for such celebration in Epiphany. The wise men were among the first people to worship Jesus. They were most definitely the first Gentiles to worship him. Matthew, in his book, is intent on opening up the circle of salvation to include all people and all nations in fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. That's why in his opening genealogy, Matthew broke with genealogical conventions by including not only four women, but four women who each had something foreign or incredibly scandalous attached to her. Matthew's trying to strike a universal tone in his gospel here. He wants not just men, but women included. Not just Israelites, but people from all nations. 
not just those whose lives conform to the standard shape of orthodoxy, but even magi, who could not have seemed less likely candidates for God's love. Matthew 2, of course, doesn't vindicate astrology. It doesn't deny the Bible's earlier warnings about people who practice such as the magi. But what Matthew does convey is the reach of grace. He's giving us a gospel sneak peek here. The Christ child who attracted these odd magi to his cradle, he'll later have the same magnetic effect on Samaritan adulterers, immoral prostitutes, corrupt tax collectors, despised Roman soldiers, ostracized lepers, and frankly, you and I. Matthew begins his book with a genealogy of grace that leads to Jesus, and he continues in this epiphany commemoration with the beginnings of a new genealogy, one that leads straight to the seats that you and I get to occupy today, one that stretches out to include all of those who you and I are called to reach. Our Christian story traces itself back to this moment. We are the progeny of these wise men from the East. And we would do well to respond to the showing forth of God's glory that we've all got to experience in the same manner as these wise men. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We get to start our new year with Epiphany, with our Magi forefathers, so to speak, setting the tone for the season of Epiphany. At this time of year, our human inclination is to lust for the new, a fresh start, a clean slate. We look for something different, some gimmick, some new formula or a resolution that will deliver success. But our Christian year calls us back, calls us to work out our salvation in the common, everyday life of Christian fellowship, of the disciplined routines of Christian worship, in prayer and study, and in works of Christian charity, including mission. It calls us back to this humble baby a king in the most unlikely of settings. Christian life isn't fundamentally about the fevers and chills of emotional excitement or spiritual phenomenon even. It's rather the careful, thoughtful learning of the word of God day by day and year by year. It's the nourishment of the sacraments and the deeds of love and mercy which flow from our Christian charity. In the normal, everyday things of the church's life, the words of scripture, prayers, sermons, the outward signs of the sacraments, in these things the world sees only bumbling human words, poor and common things, a bit of water, bits of bread and wine, so on. But faith, faith has eyes to see in all these things the shining forth, the epiphany of the Son of God, the miracle of God with us, Emmanuel. And faith has gifts to offer him. Not much, perhaps, in terms of uh, worldly value, 
But by God's own grace, we have that one best gift. Acknowledging his divinity, his kingship, and his sacrifice, we have the gift he treasures the most. The gift of adoration and the gift of humble obedience of mind and heart. Friends, Emmanuel has come and he has shown himself to us. We have so much to celebrate over these next weeks. And it's such a privilege that we get to start it today with the table. Amen. Bishop Todd, I think. Okay.